0: I feel out of practice. It's been a while. Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. To the Ogasho oh oh Galio oh Web wow Podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are life coaching the capable kids through the techno-organic end of the world in Excalibur number 82, Life Signs bracket part three close bracket, the light of a tainted dawn, the climax of one of three parallel but theoretically interconnected parts of a very confusing Phalanx Covenant crossover. Excalibur number 82 was originally published in October 1994, and the creative team is Scott Lobdell and Todd DeZago on writing, Ken Lashley and Steve Epting on pencils, Philip Moy, Harry Candelario, W.C. Carrani, John Floyd, and John Livesay on inks, Chris Mathis on colors, Dave Sharp on letters, and Suzanne Gaffney and Bob Harris on editing. We're still going in, right? Don't make me regret bringing you Forge.
1: You're here for analysis only. Got it? Yeah, sure. <clears throat> of course.
0: I got it. But we're still going in, right? future's got to be easier than this. Welcome back from the winter break and what an issue to come back to. I can't decide whether a lot or a little happened in it, but I'm sure we'll find things to talk out. But who are we? I am one of your hosts, Dr. Anna Pard. I like to talk about gender and sexuality and pop culture and comics and academic spots and around the internet. I am also the co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, where at the time of this episode dropping, we should be gearing up for a series of threads on Silver Age comics. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, so of course I'm glad he found some me time at the hair salon between issues. Very happy for him. Hair is looking great. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Please uh, catch us up on your relevant
2: Crossover issues hi uh, my name is Christopher Maverick but you can call me mav and I am excited to be here for issue 81 of our new mutants cross I guess it's 101 of our new mutants um, podcast <laughs> where we where we cover every issue of of the 1980 series the new mutants um one issue at a time for um, apparently a hundred issues plus like 10 year break and now we're back to do this other one you know I'm I'm excited because that's what this book's about. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure because nobody from Excalibur has anything to do with this issue. Yes, i mean, Yeah, I mean, Kurt got a new haircut. That was, <laughs> well, that was
0: no, neat. he grew his hair. I mean, how did he do I, that? Well, a,
2: a new a, a new style. I'm just I'm just saying, like he's yeah. uh, you know, like like literally. I mean, no, there's weaves. It's it's the '90s. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> he's. I I just I I don't know how this happened. I've got so much to say. We'll get to it, but you know, in the meantime. I, I guess I'm still um teaching professor of interact of of pop culture at University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I don't know what I do like it's weird because I feel like very off put because like I feel like any part of my regular introduction isn't relevant because this is clearly just a different podcast than we've been doing for you know some eighty Six weeks or whatever it's been. (laughs) This is weird.
0: I there's never been a time when we haven't been doing the podcast. I can't recall ever not doing it. I think it's been forever. I
2: guess. I guess. I don't know. Follow me on Twitter. Twitter still exists. In my other podcast, that's you. You. you, I. You've got this. There's no way that there's no no way this This is is someone's first first (laughs) someone's first someone decided to join the show. On on episode ninety two, I think we're on, to hear us talk about the phalanx covenant. Phalanx. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) That's a thing that happened. Yeah. Well absolutely.
0: They they might be interested in the very smart conversation we're going to have with our guest, though, who I will introduce in a moment. Um, Andrew can't be with us today; he had a family thing. Um, he still loves you; he will be back, but we're we're riding with just Mav and me and our guest today. So let's get to our guest. Andrew was
2: smart and decided not to not to be here. To discuss yeah, the
0: <laughs> he checked out on <laughs> Philex Covenant. No, he would never do that. He's committed to no. this podcast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Love you, Andrew. We miss you. We'll see you again soon. So we are joined this week by such a wonderful expert who we're so lucky to have with us. The pod is Gaga to welcome Dr. Jeremy Carnes. Welcome, Jeremy.
1: Hey, uh, I'm so excited to be here. I'm sure.
0: That sounded <laughs> I'm so, so sorry. convincing. I apologize in advance. <laughs> well, I really am. I'm
1: actually really pumped to talk about this book, but maybe it's because I have a particular love for the New Mutants. Oh. So I was excited right, to see too. some... Uh, some particular I, well, see, my love for the new mutants um comes from being, you know, familiar with them in a way that I'm not with Excalibur. So oh, okay. I feel like I actually have things to say about this book.
0: Oh, okay. perfect. Well, I'm, perfect.
2: That's good because I, I I was disappointed in a lot. <laughs> <laughs> sure. There's so much All right. to have. Let's go. Let's I'm have... sorry. I'm sorry. Let's I didn't our... mean to up on your
0: interview <laughs> see look at we keep saying that we don't want to talk about this book where we're so excited to talk about it we can't even get through our introductions so you know <laughs> I'll introduce what you get up to, Jeremy, and then we will talk to you a little bit about your affection for X-Men. Dr. Jeremy M. Carnes is a postdoctoral scholar in the Department of Rhetoric and Writing at the University of Central Florida. His work is situated within both comic studies and Indigenous literatures. He is the Reviews Editor for Studies in American Indian Literatures and co-editor of the forthcoming The Futures of Cartoons Past, the Cultural Politics of X-Men, the Animated Series, with past guests Margaret Galvan and Nicholas Miller. He is currently at work on his first book about comics by Indigenous creators and the rhetorical affordances of comics as a visual medium for considering land-based practices. That sounds awesome. Want to read it yesterday? And uh, we'll get to Indigenous representation today, definitely. That is one of the things we want to talk to you about. But let's start with your comics origin story, Jeremy. Have you been a lifelong reader of comics? When did you fall in love with them?
1: Yeah, I've been thinking about this question. I've never really actually been in a situation where someone's asked me what my comics origin story is. And I realized that I don't know kind of what my origin story is. I didn't really read comics when I was younger. I was kind of interested in them, but I grew up in a pretty poor family, and we didn't have access to comics really um and so the big thing I remember is watching the x men cartoon from the nineties um, yeah. that was like foundational to my understanding of what becomes my understanding of comics later. I think that uh, one of the earliest comics I remember owning and reading, I'm actually holding it in my hand because I dug it out of my box.
0: Oh my God. um,
1: Is giant size X-Men number four, which is kind of serendipitous. So this is from 2005.
0: Okay. And
1: it has the first of a new story by Claremont in a while. And it's a very short and not very good story. Um, (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, late career Claremont, hits and hits and misses.
1: <laughs> yeah, um, that is all about uh, John Proudstar. And so uh, yeah. it's kind of interesting that the first book I remember owning is a book that has a character that I have gone on to write about both him and his brother a lot.
0: Well, let me ask you. A few more questions about X-Men and kind of what draws you to this world. So you said that the X-Men animated series was a big influence on you. I mean, what drew you to it? What excited you about this, about this franchise, about this world of characters?
1: I think early on Storm is the answer. I love Storm so much, Um, especially the 90s cartoon Storm. She's so incredibly dramatic about everything. And it's so awesome, right? Like I'm thinking about her in that very first, right? Like, The first two part episode where every single time Storm speaks, she's like shouting to the skies. And I was like, this is awesome. I love her. She's great. And uh, I think it just kind of spitballed from there. I was really excited to see a cartoon where there were people that seemed to not like, I don't know, have everything figured out all the time.
2: (laughs) um
1: and that's kind of lovely right because i feel like so many cartoons are like there's a bad guy and then we're gonna go fight the bad guy and then oh yeah everything's happy at the end and x-men was totally not that uh and so i felt i feel like that's kind of what got me into it when i was younger um once i got into high school and actually started reading x-men comics the just complete kind of soap opera-y aspects of all of these books was just like I was like I live for this drama like I don't I'm not a very dramatic person in real life I'm actually a pretty boring person I don't like (laughs) fighting (laughs) people um I I like I like to be on everyone's good side and I would like everyone to like me and I'll do uh, I'm the one I'm the kind of person who's just like ah yeah I'll do whatever you need just you know like me be friends with me and in the x-men comics I think I got my outlet of sort of like ah drama that I really needed
0: well you've mentioned a few X-Men characters already you obviously mentioned John Proudstar and you mentioned the new mutants I mean there What particular titles have drawn you in the most over the years
1: yeah so I mean obviously it's the Claremont run on uncanny um, that really kind of like really drew me in I love all of the moves with um, with well what ends up becoming all of the offshoot books right so um, I actually wrote a chapter uh, about the X-Men in my dissertation. And it wasn't really about Uncanny at all. It was mostly about offshoot books, because as much as I love X-Men, like the Uncanny X-Men, the Claremont run, everything that branches off of that is really interesting to me. Right. So like the New Mutants were always kind of like my one true real love, Um, which is why maybe my first published thing is about the New Mutants. And I really kind of just adore thinking about characters like Danny Moonstar and Amara Aquila and like Amara's introduction and the sort of weird we're going to hide her as a brown girl, girl in the jungle sort of thing. Yeah. Um, like those sorts of things just like fascinate me with how we make sense of race in comics. And maybe that ties into my love for Storm as well then. Later I got really obsessed with uh, tracking down all of the many times that Jean Grey has died and come back to life, um, which is always an interesting kind of thing well, on to On a do. professor's salary? How can you possibly afford that? That's so many comics. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> um, I ended up only really writing about the kind of first time that it happened. But my dissertation got really interested in questions of time, both like how we represent time in comics, but then also how time gets co-opted in certain forms in comics, Um, And so of course, with the X-Men, I had to write about like all of the time travel and all of the jumping back and forth and the this matters here and this matters there and Rachel Summers appears and oh, suddenly, you know, she's here and she knows the future of these two really pivotal characters. But is it really the future? There are these other timelines and it just all like kind of became something that was so much more fun for me to think about, because I think it gives us a, a different kind of conception of temporality itself. As much as, you know, people say that comics are for kids, I actually think they're really, really difficult.
0: Um, and yeah, I love that. Yeah, well, tell me a little bit more about that. Is that what kind of drew you to wanting to study comics, sort of their unique ways of representing reality? Because you just talked about it so eloquently there, and I love everything that you're saying about time, which is something that really draws me to this space as well. But was that a central hook for you in terms of making comics part of your scholarly practice?
1: It's actually really interesting. I'm not so sure I know the answer to that. I think comics became a a part of my scholarly practice just because when I started my PhD program... I just started writing about comics for every class that I took. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got to my like dissertation phase and was writing my prospectus. And like I just had no motivation. I almost like quit my PhD program because I was like, oh, yeah, I can't do this. Like I don't know what to write about. I don't have anything to say. Um, and I ended up writing three different dissertation prospectuses <laughs> because I couldn't wow. decide what I wanted yeah. to write about. And it wasn't until after I wrote the second one and my advisors, like I sat them down and I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. This is terrible. Uh, and they were like, what do you like? It was right before a winter break. And they were like, take break don't do anything and just read whatever you want to read and then come back in January and let's talk about it. So we did that. And all all semester or all break, I just read a bunch of comics and we went back through everything that I had written during the grad program. And it was all about comics and all about comics and race and representation. And at the time I had gotten into these really intense concerns about temporality from indigenous studies. Mm -hmm. And so eventually all of that just sort of melded into one project that allowed me to say some really fun things about some really fun comics.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) my entry point's not quite the same, but still, the excitement that I had realizing that all of these other things I knew about how stories work, work differently in comics. And it's not that comic studies didn't exist when I started doing it, but still, there was just so much ground to cover. (laughs) And boy, as a scholar, that was so exciting to be like, oh, there are these stories that, like... (sighs) tell stories about identity and power through bodies and visual metaphors, and they represent the past and the present at the same time in overlapping fragmented panels. This is like blowing my mind how much I can do with this with my sort of background in literary studies and gender. And yeah, I love going at it from the perspective of time. That's such a, that's such an interesting avenue to kind of explore comics through and I will plug our episodes on Excalibur 66 and 67 which was all about Rachel Summers and queer temporality I think you would enjoy both of those if you want to go back and have a look and let us know what you think because like I loved having those conversations there but um uh, I really want to talk more about the Indigenous rep stuff and talk about your work there but let's do the issue summary and then we'll come back and talk about some of those things and then talk a little bit about Forge. As we mentioned, he's present in this issue. Um sure. <laughs> we can talk about what we have here, but we can also talk about the character in general, because he's a character that I do enjoy talking about, and I know we've all got thoughts. Alright, so I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. If we needed to absorb your essence to save the world, we'd definitely run it by you first. But speaking of catching everyone up on the plan, let's review where we're at with a plot summary. Excalibur 82 opens with a bunch of heroes who aren't really part of Excalibur contemplating a techno-organic version of the spire from Inferno, I mean the totally original Phalanx Beacon. The group of heroes, which includes Wolfsbane, Cannonball, Duglock, and Forge, confront the techno-organic villain known as Sheenar, who tells them Forge is destined to be the midwife of a new life form. Meanwhile, Duglock takes out Sam and Rain in a supposed act of fealty to the phalanx. But it's a ruse, Duglock just wants to save the day. He thinks he can do that by absorbing the bodies of Sam and Rain, but they talk him into not doing that, saying they'll climb the tower together to disable the beacon. Meanwhile, Havoc stands on the edge of the castle at Mount St. Francis where the phalanx beacon is going up, but he'd rather be in bed. Shatterstar and Warpath complain about doing nothing while the end of the world is at hand, but Alex, ever a dynamic take-charge kind of guy, tells them to hang tight because the important battles are being waged elsewhere. Speaking of elsewhere, Sheenar takes Forge to an open glen where he introduces him to a collection of pods containing new techno-organic lifeforms he wants Forge to help safeguard. Forge, a victim of his own mutant empathy for machines, reluctantly agrees to protect the lifeforms. Elsewhere, once again, Polaris is using her powers to fly a team of heroes that includes Kitty, Kurt, and Boom Boom toward the Phalanx Beacon. They're attacked by Sheenar but saved when Duglock manages to destroy the beacon. But there's still those pod people to deal with. Kurt finds Forge and quickly sees he's under the control of the phalanx. Luckily, Kurt's an A-plus life coach and uses those skills to talk Forge into resisting his programming to reprogram the pods to destroy themselves. High fives all around. As the beacon falls to the ground, Sheenar makes like a wicked witch and begins to melt, the rest of the phalanx following his lead. Rain is sad about Doug seeming to die a second time in front of her, but oh snap, he's not dead, Doglock is alive, and they hug. We conclude with Forge contemplating his humanity and whether he was fighting against it or for it. Oh, so dramatic. So much happened. <laughs> I'm sure I captured it all perfectly in that summary. So Jeremy, first impressions of this comic, anything that particularly stood out to you, anything you're particularly anxious to discuss, gripes, raves, I guess, <laughs> get them off your chest now.
1: <laughs> I feel like uh, the big thing is like plot for me for this one, right? Which is um, yeah. that like, very simply the phalanx lose and it's kind of their own fault, right? I don't really understand what happens like, I have no clue no. what is going on between the time that Doug Locke, like, kind of tricks Rain and Sam, and then Sheenar, like, I don't know, slams his head in the ground, and then suddenly, <laughs> suddenly, like, they're, they're, like, free, and, like, they're just climbing the tower later, and we don't see anything else from them. It's very strange.
0: There are so many pages and panels where it's just, like, gooey people merging into other people, and something <laughs> happened. <laughs> don't know what it's going for and i really was wondering i was like "I this is really body horror and i'm interested in that but also i don't understand what happened
2: i i, I get what they're going for it's just stupid um <laughs> well i mean <laughs> yeah so w- what i believe happened is doug swallowed them and then the phalanx knocked him out and then he knew they were going to knock him out, because once they knocked him out, they added him to the tower, because the tower is made of people, you see. So now that um, he's now that he's part of the tower, because he has Sam and Rain inside of them, who are mutants and undetectable by the phalanx, you know how Warlock could never see any mutant the entire time? Yeah, was that, was that, uh-huh. that was a thing. That was a thing. So since the phalanx can't see mutants, that means Doug can freely climb the tower that they added him to it it was all a ruse like i i get what they were going for it's just dumb and they didn't explain it well i read it a few times to figure it out cuz i was like what what and then i read it and figured out what they were going for and you know they were just they were they were very busy having a four page conversation with havoc and and chatterstar about not doing stuff i know this is,
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is why you all are uh running the podcast and i'm not cuz i did not catch Literally any of that.
0: Um, <laughs> I, no, I've, I've, back I've, I've, I've read this comic like five times.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm looking back at these panels of like, you know, uh Anna. You said the body horror stuff, and that seems like right. I guess I just didn't understand that they were like kind of swallowing and melding and then popping out of the tower. Like, I, none of that was clear to me. I was like,
2: <laughs> well, I don't so understand. <laughs> so the logic of it is all right. So now. Douglock has swallowed them, and then they're when he's climbing up. Sam and Rain are trying to burst out of his stomach, and he's like, No, but I'm using you, you know, I'm gonna get us up there. And they're like, No, we're gonna do it together because teamwork. And it's like, No, no, his way was better. What are you doing? <laughs> um, it, or separate, well, maybe be they're uncomfortable with the...
0: being absorbed into the body of somebody else <laughs> against okay, their will.
2: And, I mean, and and, yeah. and fine. And, and fine, so if you're going to do that Then why are you climbing Because, and I, I can't stress this enough They might have missed it <laughs> Sam can fucking fly <laughs> The one thing that he can do <laughs> And he can carry people when he does it Because he does carry rain Yeah, you no, know, like six pages from now He can fly, why are they climbing? What is going on? <laughs>
0: And like, I would buy it if it was for the drama of him climbing and we really had that picture dynamically, but we don't so much. No, no, so. no, no, no. no.
2: We don't see it. He's just, he's just like, all right, let's climb this tower. We'll see you when I get to the top in a few pages. And he. And then next time you come to them, they're at the top. But like, why didn't they fly? He can fly. You know who else can fly? Douglock. They can fly. <laughs> Only rain can fly and like, and someone can carry her. It's insanity. It is absolute insanity.
0: (laughs) But then, like, it made me think about the body horror stuff, because I was like, well, it seemed like it was all an excuse to just draw that kind of stuff. And it made me think so much about the conversations we've been having about extreme 90s art on the podcast so much recently, Mm -hmm. since we entered that era, circa 1993. And... I just really was looking at these pages and trying to think are they going for something deeper here or did they just want to draw this because it was fun to draw and i'm leaning towards the latter because the existential implications of the bodies merging and how it's drawn again there's a lot going on that i'm anxious to talk about but i don't well, we think the comic this. actually meant for us to talk right. about it
2: i know we've but talked no, about this no, before we, no we we did this when when we remember when excalibur all merged together in order to yeah. beat the lighthouse at many things and and, and you're like. Like, oh, I don't get why, but sexy kinda. Well, I think that's what they're going. <laughs> I think that's what they're going for. They're going for, hey, that's um that's a that's a thing that happened there. So
0: Yeah, but in, in uh, the Excalibur again, number love- fifty example, they like all step inside uh-huh. each other and then we had dialogue that was like very explicitly like orgasm and then Brian uh-huh. flying through all oh. of these circular formations of energy. So I feel like too, that way was kind of work. intentional. No, no,
2: no, just just swallow <laughs> but like just here swallow.
0: I'm like, <laughs> I don't know.
2: Sometimes you just want a quickie, Anna. Um, that was, I don't know what they're going for. It's so... Oh, God. Uh, so the other thing that happens with this, and it's like in all of that, I actually also was a huge New Mutants fan. We've talked about this on the show before. I loved New Mutants. And the whole merging, like, there's danger, we better merge our bodies, is just a thing that Doug and Warlock used to do, you know... The wind's blowing too hard. We better merge our bodies. And it was sexual. It was weird. It was it, it was just a thing that happened a lot. And they were, and it was very implied that, you know, it started off as kind of a functional thing, but then they just sort of became into it. And it was interesting. And I think this is trying to harken back to that, but with no understanding of what that meant whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. It's not exactly. explained. It's not like, like, I think that they're doing it because, of course, Doug Locke would swallow them because that's what Doug and Warlock used to do. They used to just like, oh, let's go and, and let's integrate on a cellular level. Like, But I, I don't think there's any understanding beyond, well, we used to do this, so let's do it again. Like, I think that's what, what's what's going on.
0: Well, and plus that had so much more meaning in the context of New Mutants with like the nature Mm -hmm. of Doug's abilities and then Warlock's nature and their union through their abilities and natures and, you know, the unique relationship that they had. So the merging, as you're saying, had like rhetorical and emotional potential in the way that this merging just seems to happen to me.
2: It's also important to understand that when that happened in New Mutants, uh, Doug and Warlock were, you know, two of the main characters of that book. whereas in excalibur rain and sam are people that i don't know (laughs) if i'm I'm an excalibur fan why why am i invested in these two characters who you know like say i just started reading comics i don't know a year ago i've never seen them before they weren't in last issue what is this storyline even going on it's why i hated 90s crossovers like i I understand why they were trying to do that because it's supposed to get you invested in all the in all the books and hey you know you should be hey kids go and pick up the other issues of filing's covenant no don't it's fine you don't have to um because it's not really explained any better there either and it's just it's it was a very sloppy crossover everything about it was was very sloppy
0: well i want to give you a chance to comment on the merging stuff jeremy especially because you're coming at this as a new mutants fan and then i want to talk about forge a little bit but like yeah what was your kind of take on that like did you find any of these body horror merging scenes interesting
1: Interesting in that they were terrifying to me
0: yeah.
1: um, I, don't, I don't think I had the sort of like maybe this is kind of sexy um feel at all but I, I think I had that more when you know when it became a thing with like with with Doug and Warlock in new mutants um yeah, there was something certainly sexual about about that in that context in this context i I'm, I'm like the art keeps me from <laughs> feeling any of that here i mean like i'm looking at the part where they like bust out of the tower where they like come out of duglock on the side of the tower and there are just those like mouths um Mm -hmm. and that's that's not it that's that's like very genji ito (laughs) to me um it's it's like very like genji ito body horror or something like the uh uh, uzumaki sort of stuff (laughs) i'm just Mm -hmm. like this is not it felt so tonally strange. But, I mean, maybe it's just that because I am, I mean, outside of Warlock, I'm not really super familiar with Thalink stuff, right? Like, I'm really only familiar with Warlock Mm. in New Mutants. And so, I don't know, maybe this doesn't seem to strike you so totally weird, but it struck me as really totally weird.
0: No, it struck me as totally weird too, because again, visually, and in terms of the implications of what's going on here, this really is like, dialed up to Eleven horrific and the comic doesn't really treat it like that. They're having a calm conversation about like, but we're teammates, we should do this together and I'm like, I mean you're being absorbed into another person right now and losing your sense of self and you might think you're dying and yet we're having a conversation about the meaning of friendship ship which is very x-men and very yeah. new mutants but maybe not appropriate to this situation <laughs> just
2: odd yeah, so, odd so jeremy just made the comment about like would you if you were more familiar with the phalanx nobody's more familiar with the phalanx so i, I guess i should give like a contextual <laughs> uh, so warlock was a character that had been around the new mutants for like a decade at this point and then had died and had been gone for a while and then Douglock shows up And then the Phalanx story shows up, and all of this is within like if we're reading real time back in back then in the nineties, this is all basically in the course of one year. And like Douglock showed up in that in that last story arc that we just had, we just had the Douglock Chronicles or whatever it was. This Phalanx Covenant is just a crossover that goes through every X book with very little explanation. Other than, hey, you know, so the the premise of the Phalanx Covenant was, uh, was originally a bunch of evil humans decide, hey, Sentinels are not getting the job done to kill mutants. So what we're going to do is we're going to take these Ashes of Warlock, which we have acquired for reasons. And we're going to take them and, you know, I don't know, snort them or whatever. They they, they <laughs> use the Ashes of Warlock to give yeah, themselves yeah. the transmode virus. They intentionally mm-hmm. infect themselves with transmode virus so that they can be techno-organic, so that they can become living sentinels, so that they can fight mutants. It was just like, basically, we're evil and we've decided to give ourselves an origin. And in doing so, we're now the evil phalanx. That name had never been used before, like literally three months ago as this book's being published. Like it just came out of nowhere We're the Phalanx, we're gonna be the bad guys now Everybody on board, good We're all on board, we're the bad guys now And then everybody treats them like they're these horrible Villains and then no one cared. Like, I remember reading this back then, and, and it's just like, this is not interesting. And then it was just, like, more or less, like, every time the Technarch t- comes up again, they've treated them like the Phalanx had always been there. Now in comics, they're, like, the spacefaring race that, like, actually predates the Technocracy, and, and, and it's... It, like, it's just massive retconning, but this is not a thing where anybody reading at this point would be like, yeah, I've loved the Phalanx since I was a kid. No, that, that is not a thing. This is something that just got made up out of whole cloth, like, a couple of months ago and in a different book in order to, like, have a villain.
0: Yeah, I just kept thinking about it being such an Inferno ripoff. I mean, there's so many things like that. I mean, Inferno itself is a ripoff of a billion things, but it's just, the like, what the, not the spire, least of Which is the and...
2: actual <laughs> Inferno. Yeah, I know, but like, <laughs> like Inferno, yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly but um (laughs) but like even the villain guy who's like this like dinosaur snout kind of guy looks so much like one of the main demons from Inferno and like he's even the same color and I'm like okay like I get it. Like it's just that this thing happens where they always redo Inferno in comics because people just want to draw the shit from Inferno. Which I mean, I get like, <laughs> who wouldn't want to draw all that stuff from Inferno? Who doesn't want to draw the world turning surreal and everybody being transformed and you get to draw all these wild things? But you know, you gotta have an emotional core to to, to make that worthwhile sometimes. And mm-hmm. I think we can agree, Phalanx Kevin who doesn't necessarily have that. But um, we can get back to some of that stuff because I want to talk about the conclusion. But I also want to talk about Indigenous rep. I said I wanted to talk about that at the top of the pod. So let's get back to that a little bit. So Jeremy, I'm coming to you with this. When we have guests on the pod that do a lot of work on representation, I love to just talk about that a little bit in general, because we talk about representation a lot on the pod, but... Okay, this is like a really corny question, but I do find it an interesting question because everybody kind of has a little bit of a different answer to it, and they obviously come at it from their own perspective. So Jeremy, why does representation matter? Why is it important to talk about representation in a space like superhero comics?
1: Yeah, I think this is, I mean, yes, I get I get your kind of, uh, this is kind of a corny question, sort of. And yeah, we we say this because it's it's easy to give the corny answer, right? That like, yeah. well, it's important because people who are Native should have characters who look like them. And yes, absolutely, that is 100% true. But just because a character looks like someone doesn't mean that they're a good character uh, mm-hmm. or a good representation of that character, right? So like representation, talking about representation matters because most Native characters in comics aren't very good. Uh, like, yeah. they're not really super well done largely. And so I, I mean, it always brings me back to sort of like Gerald Vizenor, who's like this uh, foundational theorist in indigenous studies who discusses the idea of like the quote unquote Indian, right? Like the idea of an Indian, mm-hmm. that an Indian has certain characteristics that we attribute to Indians, but Indians The quote unquote Indian isn't really anything like actual real native people. It's this sort of like made up fallacy of what a native person is that we create so that they fit uh, the mold of kind of settler colonial ideology that we push out into the world. And that happens in pop culture all the time, right? Like just look at Western like all of Western film. And so I always like to think about that in comics because it's so easy to look back at like, you know, Lone Ranger and Tonto and, you know, Western comics of the of the 40s and 50s and be like, yeah, those were the problems. Um, but then we get to things like, you know, Thunderbird and in the mid 70s and we're like, oh, look, this is like a really, like he actually gets a tribal affiliation. Like it's more specific. And yet it it's kind of not, too right like he dies three issues later and he's not really given a story and he doesn't really right like it's not really until danny moonstar that we actually get a character a native character who is speaking about her identity as a native woman um and even then it's kind of few and far between right uh sometimes she's just kind of there to be the sort of like native person um without saying much about her nativeness um so i always like to I like to approach this question with a sort of like, man, I love these books so much, you know, um, like, yeah. I love all of this so much. And yet, like, they, uh, there's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot um, that's going on here, you know.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the specific tropes that we see come up again and again if we're thinking about Indigenous superheroes in particular. I mean, why are these characters introduced in these spaces the way that they are? I mean, I can think of a number of things like the anachronistic sort of tropes that often attend these characters, them being sort of out of time compared to their contemporaries and just some of the larger Indigenous tropes that tend to, that tend to get attached to these characters. But yeah, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about that concept text about some of the common tropes that we see with these characters.
1: Yeah, I mean so many of those tropes are just based in right like the the settler colonial ideologies, ideas of what what Indians are or can be, right? So like you mentioned, you know, anachronistic characters, right? Well, Native folks are painted as anachronistic so that they're never thought as modern. If you can't be modern, then you can't be a part of the nation state. If you can't be a part of the nation state, then it's totally fine if we oust you uh, and take your land because that's what we need as a nation state. We need land. We need someplace to settle. Right. And so you see those same ideas come up in these characters. The other things that you see um, are things like the like someone always has to have shaman powers. It's through these kind of really vague and not at all kind of clear quote unquote Indian kind of spiritual connections that is where someone's powers come from. And I mean we even see that with Forge in some of his in some of his earlier stories. What I do love about people like Forge and characters like Forge and, and Danny Moonstar are that there are some moments where they they live in these in these stereotypes. They also push against them at moments too, right? So like Forge's mutant power is right like one of the most modern things we could po- like technologically advanced right like this is one of the most modern things i could maybe think of um like he can put anyone else's use of technology to shame which is not something that people would think of with with native folks right um so he's
0: he's a futurist specifically right he envisions the future
1: yeah 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 so i'm i i mean he is so much pushback against what what people think that in, indigenous characters could be, right? Like, this is why I love to talk about Thunderbird, too, because, like, I don't really know what his power is. He's just kind of strong, I guess. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's so vague. Um, mm-hmm. Like, we see him fight a bull in his first appearance, or like, a, a, it is a bull or a cow or something. Bison, I think. A bison, maybe. Yeah, like, he's, like, running alongside it, and he's, like, he is able to, with his bare hands, like, take it down and it's like okay like here's an uh, <laughs> extremely virile native man i guess um and that's his mutant power <laughs> and so it's like it carries through it also carries through some of those like fears of brown bodies that uh grew up in the early in, i mean even from the night 17th 18th 19th centuries right like i think about the sort of like Ideas about black folks that were uh, carried through public spaces about how black men were extremely virile and wanted nothing more than to, you know, do X, Y, and Z to white women and blah, blah, blah. And I feel like some of those come over to, to, to Proudstar as well um, and, mm-hmm. and to some of these other characters.
0: Well, let me ask you about the mutant metaphor specifically in that context. You know, scholars like Neil shaminsky, who uh, maybe is coming on the pod soon, but, um, but people like that have talked about the mutant metaphor as being appropriative. You know, his argument was specifically that the metaphor allows people to, you know, who are not necessarily other to imagine themselves as the other. And there's an appropriative aspect to that the way you know, people are different types of different within the X-Men, but their mutant status kind of flattens that all out in some respects, because the identity of mutant becomes more important than all of these other identities. And obviously, that's a generalization. There are plenty of exceptions to that where we have had interesting conversations about intersectionality within the space using the mutant metaphor to have those conversations. But what's your kind of take on it? Do you find that the mutant metaphor is useful for kind of illuminating truths related to otherness or or do you have that fear of its appropriative tendencies as well
1: yeah um, i think this is maybe where i diverge from uh, I, I mean i know neil's work i love his work um but i do think this is where i diverge from his work a little bit in that i try to i, I think i think it's a double-edged sword right yeah, um yeah like i think that there is some real kind of usefulness in right like thinking about and talking about difference apart from what the way we talk about difference in the in the real world right like in outside of the comics pages i say the real world and the real world is like you know whatever um <clears throat> but right like i think there's some use about that there's something useful about thinking about um and putting stories in front of readers that that think about difference not in the same terms and yet uh yeah i totally get the point that like the mutant metaphor can be appropriative. Um, I mean, this is where I always come back to sort of like work of like Ramsey Fawaz, who I know gets, uh, gets pushed on a little bit by some of these folks who think the mutant metaphor is really appropriative. And his work I think is really important for considering how uh, what he calls mutancy, right. Can be this like, this like thing to look through these stories and think about what it means to be different from from all kinds of different facets, right? Um, and it doesn't have to be all of the ways that we talk about difference, right? If I put a book in front of, I mean, it, it's not hard to to see this now, right? Like if I put a book about being queer in front of some readers... Uh, they might immediately shut off they won't talk about difference they won't think about difference right but if I put an x-men comic in front of them yeah you and I can read tons of tons into it about queerness and queer identity and I think that's totally there but even if you don't read that in there you're still engaging with what it means to be different what it means to exist in a state of difference and I think that that still has its use
0: Oh, yeah, totally. Don't disagree there. We wouldn't be doing this whole podcast if we didn't think those things were interesting in X-Men comics. Mm. Yeah, I mean, let me get back to sort of the Indigenous question, though. I mean, why does, um, how do I want to ask this? I kind of want to, because you already talked about this a little bit, but I kind of want to ask the question more specifically about, like, why does Indigenous representation in particular matter? Like, why has this kind of been... I mean, I would argue an underserved area in a lot of the history of, of superhero comics relative to some other identities. Like, why is this representation particularly important? I mean, in general or in this space?
1: Yeah, I think this is important because, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is I would say maybe it's not misrepresentation that's important. That's the, that I think is, strikes me as most important. Uh, I don't want to say most necessarily, but yeah. As we, we don't have to rank important. importances. Yeah. Let's not, yeah, let's not <laughs> rank importance here. Right. But like strikes me as really important because it's lack of representation that I think mm-hmm. is really important. Right. And like, yeah, that matters for kind of any difference at all, right? But I think it's really important to think about with indigenous with indigenous folks with indigenous identity because indigenous communities have been legally, historically, socially, culturally defined in relation to the United States by their absence and in relation yeah. to Canada too. Right? Like it's all about absence. Uh, and I think that the point is you're trying to Right. Like the, the point of cellular colonialism is wiping Native people out of existence, whether through actual violence of killing or through undefining them as Native. Right. That's where you get something like blood quantum that becomes really problematic. So a lack of representation then just reiterates that idea. Right. Like that there just aren't any Native people around there are no Indians, all the Indians have died off as the myth goes, right? Um, And of Mm -hmm. course, that's not true. So seeing them in stories in modern stories that are being created, well, I mean, obviously, this wasn't created now, but at the time, where like contemporary stories matters, um, because it it pushes against that narrative. But then to think about how why indigenous representation itself matters, I think a lot of it is just that, like, I, I mean, to go back to that question of like, what an Indian is and can be so much of what we see of native people are things like the Washington football team, uh and the Cleveland Indians baseball team and the the commercial of the uh native man on the side of the road who's crying because someone threw out litter of his out of their car, right? Like interestingly not actually a native man, actually a yeah, American. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um,
1: right. So like so much of this is also about, right, like taking these ideas about what about who native people are and then I think complicating all of it and I think that's I don't know I I think that's why this all matters so much to just see complex people existing in stories right as opposed to like the most simplistic thing that we can think of and then like wash our hands and be like oh look there's a native person in my story I'm done.
0: Yeah. I always think about just representation in the superhero space as being important in the sense that these are heroic ideals, and they're specifically American heroic ideals for the most part. So who gets to be a hero in that space, right? And then um, you can push back against that identity depending on who is being represented as a hero in that space, and you can have conversations about what that means. Anyway, Matt, go ahead.
2: Yeah, I think one of the things that needs to be clear. And, and and, I don't know how clear this is to our listeners. Jeremy often says Indian on purpose. And and like, I wonder if people are like, Oh, but it's supposed to be native. I was like, no, it's different. And the reasoning is because Indians as they have been portrayed throughout the history of American pop culture are a fictional group. They are roughly analogous to indigenous native Americans, but they're not the same thing. So what you end up with is even though there's a representation the representation that is Thunderbird, that is Forge, that is Danny Moonstar—you know—they are largely creations of white people to represent their ideal of a culture that they already see as othered. So this is a weird, the uh, technical term is Orientalism. And I got in, I got into an argument once with somebody who was like, why are you using that word? And I was like, what do you mean, what word? And he's like, Orientalism, it's offensive. Shouldn't you call it Asianism? It's like, no, because the entire point is that you are fetishizing something. Like it is, it is an exploration of a culture as a fetish object, an artifact that is just sort of given value by the misunderstanding of another culture, right? So you end up with characters like, both John and James Proudstar, and to a lesser extent, Danny, Danny, I'll get to in a second, but John and James Proudstar, even as progressive as they might be in some, in, in some ways, wear feathers in their hair at all times, because like, because you're just trying to, you're trying to say no, but just see they're Indians. Like we've been using in in films since like the thirties, but that's not, if you actually have a friend who is indigenous People don't just walk around with feathered headbands, like even even under the idea of are you assimilating culture with your Halloween costume, that Halloween costume is not meant to evoke the idea of an actual indigenous person, an actual Apache person or Navajo person. Those Halloween costumes are meant to evoke the ideas of the guys who were fighting cowboys in movies from the 1940s cowboys and indians that was never like a thing that's a that's a hollywood invention right but that's how i mean which is not to say that there weren't problems but the problems more often were indians and the u.s government not random you know billy the kids not fighting indians that's not what happened um yeah. it's just this is this is how we've like sort of merged this weird fictional invention with a real life culture and we like sort of pushed them together and then if we use one we're saying yep see their representation done and it's it is much more complicated than that it, it is this happens other places as well you know like in the 70s when you have the flamboyant gay character Who's also the flamboyant transgender character as though they're just sort of the same thing. Oh, he's gay. So he's a cross dresser. And it's like, that's not accurate. (laughs) But that's, but that's just how we did that in on television at the time. So it's the same sort of thing here.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, can we shift the conversation to talking a little bit about Forge in particular? And I mean, I think that there's a few things related to what is interesting about his identity that we could talk to in relation to the plot here. I mean, the thing that really interests me about Forge as a character is some of what Jeremy already said. It's sort of the ways he combines some tropey stuff with like some stuff that resists those tropes. I mean, his futurism, his association with technology. And I'm also really interested in the way That there's an interesting gender component of his powers, because his powers are sort of intuitive and almost like a kind of empathy with machines, which are stereotypically feminized in some ways. And even if we think about the language that's used to describe his abilities in this issue, he's described as a midwife. Right. And that's a term that comes up frequently with Forge. Actually, if you go to his uh, Marvel wiki, there's a a quote from Forge describing himself as a midwife from a comic from 2016. So like this is not a a one off thing. And I'm interested in all of those things with this character. And it does come out in the storyline here where you see him sort of manipulated by his own mutant abilities, his own, I'm saying empathy with machines, but that's not quite it, but it's sort of played a little bit like that, that, you know, almost biologically he is compelled to help the phalanx and has to resist that element of himself, and it's this internal battle with the nature of his mutant powers, and although it's not handled well, it's basically like Kurt being like, you can do it, Forge, and some really compelling pages (laughs) of Forge grimacing with Kurt tapping him on the back, and I'm like, ugh, but still that element of of, you're not just a mutant,
2: you're human I know
0: (laughs) (laughs) I mean I love Kurt, I love him this is some of his hokiest (laughs) stuff here you're not just black,
2: you're also a person Mm. (laughs) don't think of yourself as gay, you're a person too this is Mm -hmm. like It's sort of the flaw. It's the flaw with that nondescript metaphor, right? The the Mm -hmm. problem with the mutant metaphor, especially when written by someone who didn't quite have a handle on it, is often the idea of, hey, you know, you're just like everybody else is usually not what an impoverished group is going for. They're also not going for we're different than everybody else, they're going for acceptance. It's not the same thing as ignore me, ignore the thing that makes me different, be proud. Your real power is not your literal magical power. Your real power is that, you know, you're a dude. (laughs) Like that.
0: (laughs) 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 not. It's often it's often handled it's often handled badly with Nightcrawler because I mean in his first appearance you know he says he doesn't want to be normal but then he sometimes becomes the mouthpiece for assimilation you know in something Mm -hmm. like his conflict with the Morlocks like oh I don't want to be judged for my appearance I want to be judged for my actions and then if you're persecuted it's your fault for not conforming to the norm or whatever and he's a very people pleasing (laughs) person and that can be interesting I mean we had conversations back when we talked about uh, Nightcrawler's technet about him being sort of a model minority and the way that That can be Mm -hmm. a very interesting dynamic with the character or it can be handled the way it's handled in this issue where he's just like saying platitudes about people's humanity and (laughs) just like, what exactly (laughs) is the philosophy here? I'm a bit confused. But anyway, I'll bring it back to you, Jeremy, to talk a little bit more about Forge, if, if you would like. I mean, you already said a bit about him, but I mean, what interests you about this character?
1: Well, I find this particular issue for this character extremely intriguing um okay. and primarily I find this discussion that he has with um what's his character's name again? Shinar. Yeah
0: Is that the right? villain
1: guy. Yeah, the villain <laughs> um off vaguely dinosaur. Shinar, dude. Shinar,
0: yeah, the Shinar, dinosaur dude. Yeah.
1: <laughs> he looks like a velociraptor. Um I know. <laughs> but with uh that can stand I'm on good. well, I guess velociraptors do stand on two legs, so that was a dumb thing I was about to say. <laughs> anyway. Um, i find this uh moment where they go to this like little clearing and they see all of these phalanx eggs the the most interesting moment of the entire book mm-hmm. and it's because the rhetoric of this moment is totally the rhetoric of settler colonialism right oh. like Sheenar says, You can see, can you not, that the phalanx will be the ultimate victor in this contest for dominance? We are more adaptable, more efficient than humans on every level. Simply put, our race is far superior. Doesn't nature dictate survival of the fittest? Like, that's all, like, straight out of settler colonialism's playbook. And so, this is a weird sort of thing to see happening where Forge is now going to play the pivotal role in seeing what has already happened to his people happen again, right? Like, I feel like there was such a moment here that could have been so cool for this character where it's not, it wouldn't have been Nightcrawler that makes him understand yeah. that, right? Like that he can't do this. It could be his own history, his own people's history. And this brings me back to, I think, in a broad, a, a broad issue with indigenous representation in comics, but with Forge and, uh, I mean, all the other characters we've talked about more specifically is yeah, they're given tribal affiliations, but that's all. It's named, right? Forge is Cheyenne, and that's really all that we get. We don't get any, any sort of, like, pull into his tribe's history, and so I'm thinking about the ways that this could have been, I mean, you know, I can hope, hope, and hope, and hope that it could have been so much better, but, like, I'm thinking about like, you put a Cheyenne person in this situation, they're not going to not think about something like the Sand Creek Massacre, which is one of the worst atrocities to ever happen in the United States. And it happened to Cheyenne and Arapaho people. And like, what we're seeing is the the phalanx like pushing Forge to help them do the same thing here. And I feel I just feel like that, that's what That's what missed here because it's like, for me, this is like a really interesting moment where Forge is put at this impasse and it's never even addressed like not even for a second
0: and it's odd because that had been part of forge's story in some Mm -hmm. previous comics i mean the conflict between his obligations to one world versus another world or potentially multiple worlds and that is a big part of the character and yet it's odd here that it just comes down to humanism right it's just your humanity And like, it's just, I mean, I get it. That's an easier beat to play because you don't have to do yeah. <laughs> research into someone's culture. You don't have to do anything. You could just go to something very generic and yet, yeah, it's it's right there, <laughs> but it's just not there.
1: Yeah, the the whole time I was like, Oh, it it literally just takes a sentence, like one sentence mm-hmm. to make the connection for us. It doesn't even you don't even have to dwell on it. One sentence would do it, and it just never materializes.
2: I mean, it's the plot of follow of the mutants, right? Like that's literally his central conflict is trying to is trying to reconcile that. With his experience, you know, his mm-hmm, mm-hmm. his also his experiences in Vietnam, which are also mm-hmm. not mentioned here, because it makes like I believe they just don't want it to be right like this is this is the attempt. To be as apolitical as possible and still try to tell this weird. I mean, it's like the story does not want to situate him in any real event and then therefore deal with the consequences of it. So they've gone out of their way to not mention his Native American history. They've not to not mention his, you know, American military history. Like those should both matter. They are the whole essence of this character up until now. But, you know, why would he think about that? (laughs) Just because...
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, choices were made. I mean, would you say, Jeremy, that Forge is a character that has potential to resist tropes? Or is he a character that we see sort of falling victim to those kind of tropes because of the milieu in which he's situated? I mean, does he get to exceed the generic space? Or is he a character that can potentially question that?
1: I think he's a character who absolutely can question it. And I think that we sometimes see some of that, like in his kind of move away from um, his early move away from sort of like the shamanism and stuff. Um, I think that some of that is written in such a way that it is a compelling consideration of what it, what an Indian mutant could be. And so I think that the, that the possibility is there. I think that a lot of it is just that so much writing around Native characters is so short-sighted and so, like... I don't know. I I don't want to say like, I don't want to say lazy, but maybe kind of lazy. Um, Like, I don't know really how to characterize it. I think that the possibility is really there, though.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's always a character that he's got some great moments and the potential of the character really fascinates me. And I mean, the fact that he's sort of not a good guy either. like fascinates me i mean he's he's an anti-hero he's not a good guy but that's part of his complexity like he's such a potentially fascinating character and often underserved but still a character that i'm always excited to see show up and you know he's doing some stuff recently you know again not being a super good guy necessarily but he's been around but um yeah the thing one thing i did want to mention since andrew's not here to mention it is that andrew has been mentioning many times on Claremont Run that Forge still doesn't have a name, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which you know maybe maybe he'll get one at one point, but yeah, he still um, does not canonically have a name.
2: It's I mean it's one of those things like um I, I mean Wolverine only had a name only got a name because they mm-hmm. did not want to Marvel did not want to risk the uh film franchise giving him a name before the comics did and that's how he became james howlett it was it was literally intended to keep him mysterious forever they gave him the Logan name just just because but Wolverine and Magneto both were they became Eric Lyncher and James Howlett because the X Men film franchise had decided all of a sudden to make Rogue Anna Marie. And they were like, oh, ho, well, you did what? And so, in order to avoid that happening, they just named them. And I, I think because Forge doesn't appear in any of those films, they never worried about
0: it. Yeah, there is a trend, though, with characters of color sometimes not mm-hmm. being Absolutely. given names. So, there's like that as well. Mm-hmm. So, it's like, yeah, it's both things. Um, there's an excellent mm-hmm. piece about that uh, by Ritesh Badu for Comics XF, which I will add to the show notes.
2: That should also I should also um note that this extends outside of comic it 's a thing that is used again to other people to make somebody an exotic you know as a racial thing is to just assume well their culture doesn't do that, and you know therefore he has you know he he has no name because that makes him a much more mysterious Indian, even though clearly Forge is not a Cheyenne name, clearly Forge is some name he picked up because of his, you know, his superhero power, not because, of, you know, it's clearly a code name, not a native name. And yet he uses that because it's supposed to make him seem more distant as a, you know, as a as an indigenous person. So that's weird. yeah
0: and i mean we've we've talked on the pod before about sort of the power of mutant names and self-naming but still it's significant the way not giving him like a human name kind of distances us from that aspect of his identity and you know again maybe he'll get one at one point who knows yeah
1: you talk about self-naming but in a lot of native communities community naming is really mm-hmm. important right mm-hmm. uh and that's a noticeably lacking thing for many native characters right and so that seems really important too
0: yeah and you see that tension between sort of mutant identity and you know generically within this space but like also story-wise sort of coming up against that and that's again when that's been done well you know you've had moments where you see people's identities conflicting with their obligations to the mutant cause and there's been some interesting stories with danny moonstar um in that context over the years but yeah (laughs) i still think forge really deserves a name (laughs) it would help (laughs) but anyway uh let's do let's go around and just do some some uh What do I call this last segment? Final thoughts. I was like, final impressions? That doesn't sound right. I was like, oh boy, we've had two (laughs) weeks off. I don't remember how to do the podcast. Um, Yeah, let's go around and do some final thoughts. Mav, anything that you wanted to make sure that we get a chance to talk about that we didn't get a chance Uh, or anything you want to revisit?
2: Yeah, okay, so we... We mentioned briefly that this isn't really an caliber comic. Brian and Megan aren't in this at all. Um, They just forgot about it with no explanation. <laughs> They're just not part of the story. Um yeah. Rory who, you know, uh, Kitty and Kurt. Yes, I get that Kurt gets to have the you go dude conversation, but like it's it could have been anybody. It's not, you know, it's not. Yeah. It, it really isn't about him being the star of this book, theoretically. Kitty uh, literally teleports around a couple of times, like how she's in it. But there's a couple of weird artistic inconsistencies of this book that just fascinate me. So Lorna, a character who I love, by the way, I, I, I think is um, very underutilized. E- even in this day, I realize she's more of a main character today. But anyway, Lorna is piloting this, um, this ship that Forge has made without an engine in order to you know get them which is a smart thing hey she has magnetic powers why would we create an, a ship with an engine that the filings could take over we will create something that she'll just like magnetically lift over there except that like and that's clearly what the thing is there's no technology in this ship except you know that was clearly not communicated to the artist yeah because there's <laughs> computers oh I, I mean, okay, <laughs> yes okay perhaps there's no motor <laughs> There's computers all over the place and they're wearing some kind of Iron Man arm. What are you doing? This is like the absolute worst. Like, like why X-Men don't normally wear armor, but they are here. I mean, they wear like a body armor. That is the, is is the X suits. I get that, but they're in literal power suits to go and attack an enemy that is specifically assimilating technology, that's what they do. None of this makes, like, I don't understand, like, they're looking at, like, readouts, and they've got buttons all over the place. Like, they <laughs> literally could have just, you know, you know everybody hang on to this big piece of metal and we'll lift it around, you know, the way Magneto's always done, but they've done this thing because it was the 90s and they wanted to draw some technology. And then the other thing was um, once they get there, I don't know if Epstein and Lashley knew that Rain... And Kitty are two different characters. And the reason I say that <laughs> is <laughs> we get to this end part where Douglock died, or maybe he didn't. Okay, fine. And Rain is horrified. Uh, she's horrified because we've lost Doug again. But Doug's alive. Okay, yay. Doug luck's alive. So Rain goes to give him a hug. And they have this nice little touching moment. And then he looks over at Kitty standing next to Cannonball and goes in for a near kiss. I'm not sure what's going on there. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Like, like, it's explicitly. Kitty should get the not, hug
0: and Rain should get the kiss. Or... I, neither I mean, of them we, should really I mean, get a kiss but anyway right
2: and we don't see them kiss like it's like yeah. but it's just like a you know lips close together and and I don't I don't understand like what where people are other than like I think maybe it would have made more sense if this was rain in every panel on this page like yeah <laughs> like I don't understand why Kitty is over there all of a sudden because she doesn't talk and I thought well maybe it's supposed to be that rain is changing back into human form now that the mission's over except that No, she's explicitly wearing Kitty's costume here. Like, I don't under, it's Kitty's hair, it's Kitty's costume. This has got to be a mistake. And it bugs me because I cannot reconcile it. And it was just things like that, you know, the technology, the, you know, I've been apologetic for Lashley art before that was not one of the ones that um it's not one of the finer moments in the, in his run here
0: i tell you what was one of the finer moments was congrats to our letterer for the letterer for the sound effect on that page that you're pointing to with the hugs <laughs> it's like doug emerging for the ground and just like <laughs> Yeah, awesome sound effect <laughs>
2: So on gross. the other hand <laughs> on the other hand the letter earlier in the book forgot that doug had mm-hmm. um had technological square box words so yeah. doug at one point gets like doug just starts speaking in regular word balloons like a couple pages earlier and then goes back to the technological balloons again later i like what is going on a
0: lot of there? people <laughs> worked on this comic <laughs> It is.
2: It is. I don't it know. very much does. Um, it does suffer from the um the Manny hands um, yes. style of of Marvel. So of the many Mighty anchors on this
0: one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, my my brief final thought, it's not anything, but just, I was thinking about Steve Epting's art and the way, even though we're only in 1994, in some ways we are moving away from elements of the extreme 90s. I mean, when you think about sort of the thick, smooth lines of Epting's style, which doesn't really feel very imagey, even though it's still very extreme. And then just, I don't know, the hair in the, like, Epting sections. It's like they're all in mm-hmm. this spaceship, and they have just hair that is 10 feet tall, every single character. And that's, he gives Kurt the big hair as well. He just loves drawing that hair, and it looked ridiculous with the spacesuits and with everything going on. But on the other hand, I did appreciate the ridiculousness in a camp way. Everybody was looking fabulous for the end of the world. I have to give them their due there. <laughs> anyway jeremy final thoughts from you anything that you want to circle back to or anything that you wanted to mention that we didn't get a chance
1: so two really quick things the first one back to forge is there's a point where Sheenar says uh you know our way is best Mm -hmm. and uh that to me i mean especially it being the phalanx that to me screams right like assimilation right so i think there's a way to read all of this uh all of this rhetoric through assimilative rhetoric uh and thinking about how Shinar sounds a lot like someone who's running a boarding school, for instance, or 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 something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's something really interesting about about that sort of relationship between those two characters in that moment. Not related to this though, and again, more more kind of plot line uh, issues, which is the beginning of the book. It's all um, you know rain and sam and and doug lock and when they first come against the phalanx rain is like come on we've got to go help sam we're doing this and doug is just kind of standing there and she's like why are you just standing there and sam just like very piddly is like that's not the guy we knew that's not the guy we loved and she's like you're right doug locked de- or doug doesn't matter anymore and it's like whoa that was a really <laughs> quick turn like God. you looked really concerned and now doug just doesn't matter That turn struck me as very strange.
0: I mean, yeah. As we've been reading these ones, I'm just struck by the melodramatic strangeness of '90s X-Men comics in general. Like, there's another scene where Kitty is talking about, "Oh, everything's been so bad lately, and you know, my friends slash girlfriends have died. You know, my dad is missing. It's the end of the world." And Boom Boom's just like, "Hey, Kitty, it can always get worse." Bubblegum pop. Oh,
2: good point. <laughs> 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 yeah, which is very Boom Boom, to be fair. <laughs> no, but but the fact is, the the, the great thing. Is- is like Kitty like sort of pies into it. You're like, hey, you know, your two best friends, sisters, lovers, whatever you want to call them. like literally the two people you're closest to in the world are dead, and like your dad is missing. Yeah, but you know, Matlock's not been canceled. What, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's, it's literally, it's literally like I mean, it's just like oh, you know, it could be worse. And, and she's and, and and Kitty goes, yeah, it could be worse. You're right. I'm like, could it? like I, 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 I don't know it was weird they believe the world to be ending right now like we're supposed to be buying into the Phalanx or like this this, this world ending threat but you know could be worse you know
0: I maintain very hair looks fabulous
2: <laughs> my pride broke it
0: my rage broke it
1: this excellent night ...who fought with fairness and grace,
0: was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my father's... ...whose power was meant to unite all men... ...not to serve the vanity of a single man. All right. So we will wrap things up there other than to say, Jeremy, thank you so, so, so much for taking time out of your well-deserved semi holiday to chat with us about this, this ridiculous comic before we go though, we need to remind our lovely listeners of where they can find you and what you get up to. So if you've got any social media handles you want to share or any past or upcoming writing or other projects you would like to spotlight for our listeners, now is the time. The floor is yours.
1: Yeah. So I'm not super active in digital spaces, but, uh, Uh, You can find me on Twitter, um, mostly lurking and not writing anything. Um, My handle there is at J.M. Carnes. As far as upcoming projects, the big thing is the uh, X-Men, the Futures of Cartoon's Past, the X-Men cultural politics of X-Men, the animated series that I'm co-editing with uh, Margaret Galvin and Nicholas Miller. um, And I'm going to have a chapter in that about... You guessed it, Thunderbird who very weirdly shows up in the opening credits of that show on the bad guys side and it's very <laughs> weird. Um so we're going to we're going to try to piece apart what the heck is going on there. Uh other than that, I that's it. That's, I'm working on a book that's taking up all of my time.
0: <laughs> we will link some of your some of your previous writing in our show notes as well, which we've also spotlighted on Sequential Scholars recently during our unit on indigenous representation. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, just thank you so much again, Jeremy.
1: Thanks. I love being here.
0: So next, we're dipping our toes into a brand new era with Excalibur number 83, Bend Sinister, part one of the so-called so- of the so-called Soul Sword trilogy. That is difficult to say. It's the first issue scripted by Warren Ellis, a famed and, let's say, <coughs> complicated writer who comes with a lot of Pete Wisdom-shaped baggage, but does start to reshape the book into something special. We are looking forward to the interesting convos to come. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it don't forget to check out the fabulous youtube videos which we've done for many of our earlier episodes plus our recent holiday special which you can find via our website or the Vox podcast youtube channel as always if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you Matt, for helping us survive the latest end of the world thank you jeremy for coaching us through it thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought form music for a truly epic theme song play us out